0: It's good to be with you guys today. Um, we're in the summer, huh? It happened quickly. I'm sure it's going to end just as quickly um, <laughs> as it always does, but I'm thankful for it. It's a good new season for us as a family. I hope it is for you as well. Um, thanks for coming out today and just being part of our family gathering. We call this our family gathering because we believe that we're the family of God because of Jesus. I say that often uh, to remind us that the church isn't a building and it's not a time slot on Sunday morning, but it's a people. And so we as the church get together, so that's why we call it a gathering. Um, but really we're together to uh, celebrate God and His goodness to us through Jesus, get equipped uh, to, to live uh, with God and for His purposes in the world and then be sent out, empowered by the Spirit. Uh, To be the church 24/7. So we call the other 6:22, the other six days and 22 hours of our week. So, uh, so we're here to to, for all those reasons. So we hope that uh, that you're um, here this morning and ready to to hear from God's word. We've uh, we've been in a series that we've been doing for the last 11 weeks or so. uh, Throughout the letter that Paul, who is an apostle. Uh, and church planter in the first century, century wrote to uh, a series of churches in a region called Galatia. And he's writing to them to confront some things that they've started to believe because of some outside influences. Um, and, and we've been talking about this as the, the main idea behind this, um, the whole series and behind his letter is just the concept of freedom that we have been set free from the need to earn our place before God. We've been set free uh, from rules and regulations and living our life according to the things that you do or don't do that make you who you are. Because in Jesus, you get made into something. You get an identity. And that identity as a child of God gives you great freedom. Um, And one of the things that it gives you great freedom for, we talked about this last week, was freedom to be able to be... Connected with God in such a way that you can actually walk by His Spirit. Um, and so I, I hope, uh, as we taught on that last week, that you've had opportunities to actually hear from God this week. That you've, you've, had, you've experienced Him directing you and, and using you uh, and speaking to you uh, and guiding you this week. Today, we're going to talk about the, kind of the next thing that He talks about, which is relationships. What does it look like to have relationships that are governed by the Spirit, that are guided by the the good news of the gospel? Because you can't talk about being changed as as a person who is now in relationship with God without that relationship affecting the way that you relate to other people. In in fact, I mean you you may know people who claim to have a relationship with God, and yet they are, in terms of their relationships with the people around them, just damaging person after person after person. And you go, I don't see the connection in you between what you claim to be true vertically and what I'm seeing to be true horizontally. If, 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 if we are connected with God in a vertical way, that vertical relationship will change the way that we relate horizontally with the, those around us. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at that today. Because for Paul, you can't actually talk about following Jesus without talking about how that relationship affects every other relationship. You have no relationships with anyone, spouse, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that that is not outside of being implicated by your relationship with Jesus. It will affect absolutely everything if, if you allow it to. So, so let's jump right in. We're going to be in Galatians 5, uh, starting in verse 25. We're going to do a couple of the verses that we did last week, and then we'll move into new material. We're going to go through chapter 6, verse 5. So if you don't have a Bible with us, this, this is uh, on page 813 in the Bibles that we have underneath the seats. By the way, sometimes I mention this. You're free to take those with you. I know I was talking to somebody that did that recently and they're like, I felt so weird just taking this out of the building. It's the only thing you get to steal today. So if you want one, it's yours. Okay. So Galatians 5, let's start in verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters... If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law he's talking about is is what Jesus talked about as the most crucial aspect, the most crucial commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you fulfill that as you carry each other's burdens. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. For each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So here's the question. Why does Paul... Last week we were talking about the Spirit and being filled by him and what that means and how to walk with the spirit and he makes this major shift almost immediately he says let's walk by the spirit or keep in step with the spirit and then he goes right into relationships and treating one another the way that that god intends us to treat one another why does he make this shift so we often dialogue i'm going to ask you that why do you think paul makes this dramatic kind of shift and starts talking about the way that we should relate to one another in light of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Why is that next, do you think? Yeah, so there's a sense that if you're under a whole set of rules and you know that you need to keep all of those rules in order to maintain your relationship with God, how much of your time and energy and attention is going to be focused on what you need to do? A great amount, right? You're going to spend all your time and effort going, well, I need to do this and I need to stop doing this. And if I do that to a great degree, then I'll be in good standing with God. And what, what he, he's, he's trying to communicate is when you get freed up from needing to live according to all that set of rules, guess what your life now becomes? You actually get the freedom not to think about yourself so much. And you get the freedom to start to think about and live for the benefit of other people. And so that's what's going on. And part of the, the answer, though, is that we need to understand that relationships in general with other people are fundamental to who we are as people and who we are as people who are made in God's image. It's fundamental. Because in the beginning, if you, if you realize this, if you know the story of God, and you go back to Genesis, the very beginning of our existence as people, God made everything good, Right? And and we have a a record of that. God making light and darkness and sun and moon and sky and water and dry land and plants and animals and people. And after everything that he makes, he he makes a declaration. He says, this is good. This is good. I've made it good. But when God created the first man named Adam, he says this in verse 18 of of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It's the first time God ever said anything was not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The first thing that's not good in the history of the universe is what? It's for man not to be alone. In other words, what's not good is a person without relationship. A person that's void of relational interaction. Now you have to think, like, well, why is that then? Did God make a mistake in the way that he created Adam? Was, was Adam incomplete? Did, did God have to do something else to, to make it so? Was there a flaw that God put into Adam's design? And the answer, at least the Christian one, is no. The reason that it wasn't good for Adam to be, to be alone is because Adam was made in the image of a God who has always been in relationship. He's always been in relationship. See, if you know anything about world religions and and other philosophies and teaching, every other world religion says essentially that God was alone until the time which he created someone to be in relationship with. So God is alone for eternity, and then somewhere along the way, he creates man in His image. Or He creates angels. Or He creates something. And that something then is in relationship with Him. But before that, God was alone. Which means, if if that's your philosophy, if that's your way of thinking, then to be like God means you don't necessarily need relationships with other people. You can be an island unto yourself and, and live a totally contented, totally full life but here's the thing all of us know that's not true you know that's not true that's the whole reason why one of the worst punishments that we have a society is to take someone and put them in what solitary confinement why is that such a horrible punishment because we crave interaction we need it We need to be around other people. We need interaction. We need relationship. And only Christianity says that we are made in the image of a God who has always, always, always been in relationship for all eternity. We're told that that God has been in a relationship with Himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That there was never a time that God was not in relationship with those three persons constantly Uh, giving love to one another and being love and receiving love all the time between those members of the Trinity, which means the reason that human beings without relationship is not good is because we're made in the image of a God who has been always in an eternal dance of love between Father, Son, and Spirit, giving and receiving love. Part of the wonderful things i think about this teaching of christianity is that it should tell you that you were not made for any other reason than to be an overflow of god's love for the world god actually had so much love going on in that triune dance that it spilled out onto a creation that's why he made the world good that's why he made you I mean, it's, it, we know this to be true a little bit because like in marriage relationships, there's so much love between the two people that what happens? Procreation. You're created out of the overflow of someone's love for another. And that's not just true hum, in a human perspective. That's true in, in a cosmic perspective. But it also means if we are made in the image of that God, then we need each other in order to know what God is like. We need one another in order to understand what he's like. But it goes even deeper than that. Because when, when Adam is created, God declares that it's not good, and then he goes and he makes a helper for him, and he, he takes Eve out of his, uh, and forms her from his rib, and then presents her to Adam, he breaks out in the first poetic song of the entire Bible. And you know what he says? In verse 23, it says, the man says this, this at last, this at last, is bone of what? My bones and flesh of my flesh. Now you, you could assume that maybe what he's talking about there is just a physical reality because Eve was formed from his rib and so there's bone of my bone but there's something deeper going on here because he's he's talking poetically about her kind of being presented to him and what he's really saying is not just anatomically she's from me he's saying when i look at you i've actually found myself when i see you i see me And now I know as I look at you, I see what I'm really like. I see me for who I am when I look at you. She's like a mirror to him, and he's like a mirror to her. And what that should tell us is that we actually cannot really know ourselves. We can't really know God, but we can't really know ourselves until we've been connected to someone else who's able to reflect what we're like to us. And we're not just talking about marriage here. This is what it means to be in community. See, but Adam, getting a deep, per- perfect relationship, he suddenly comes to know what he's like through her. She was different than him. She's a complement to him. But at the same time, she's enough, she has enough of the same qualities going on to show Adam what he was really like. And this is what relationships do. They get you in touch with who you really are and who God really is. That's what God intended relationships to do. And you see that between Adam and Eve, especially when there's a perfect relationship between the two of them because what's the quality of their relationship? They are completely naked, we're told, and yet they are unashamed. They're totally open totally honest with everything in ter- terms of who they are, and as they reflect one another to each other, they're learning more about what they're like through one another. And they're completely unashamed. But there's a problem. Because the relationship didn't stay that way. Now, how many of you have, uh, have experienced in your relationships, I'm not just talking about one relationship, but all of your relationship, a metaphorical complete unashamedness over your nakedness. You can just be completely who you are with absolutely every person. You never have to cover up. You never have to massage the truth. And everyone acts the exact same way to you. Anybody? Nobody. Hmm. All right, that should tell us something. What happened? What went on? Well, if you keep reading the story, you find out that what happened was a broken relationship with God. And when the relationship with God was broken, sin entered the world, and the immediate result of that broken relationship with God was shame towards one another. We talked about that three weeks ago. See, when we feel shame, when we know that what our, our naked selves presented before other people is, 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 not, without, is not perfect, is, is not without de- de- defect then we do everything that we can to try to hide that shame through covering our nakedness. We don't want others to see us. We don't want God to see us. We don't want people to know what we really like, how we're really broken. And so we present selves to people that really are a version of us, but not the, fil- the full thing. And so we see this with Adam and Eve. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. And ever since then, Ever since that decision we have been running from each other rather than walking towards each other. We have been hiding from one another rather than being open about ourselves. And you know this is true. I mean you you've experienced this in almost every relationship that you've been a part of, have you not? I I certainly have. You feel the consequences of this sin every day. And the truth is, even if you have good relationships, those relationships that you have that might be with your your best, most intimate, your closest friend, do those relationships just happen naturally or do they take work? They take great effort, don't they? And you have to tell yourself over and over and over again in those relationships, I can be honest, I can be open, They're going to do that with me. We can get beyond this. And and even with all that effort, you still experience in your best relationships things like disappointment and conflict and resentment and hurt feelings. Am I just speaking to myself here? This is true of mine. I assume it's true for everybody. And I think the reason that we experience that And the reason that we're so prone to get hurt in relationships with other people is because as an image-bearer of God, we still expect, in our heart of hearts, deep down, we expect that relationships will still play the role that God intended them to play. We still look to them to do what God intended them to do, and they don't. And we still look to people to be the perfect image bearers that God designed them to be in our life, and they fail. And we fail. And we fail other people. But we so desperately want people to be the perfect image bearers that God designed them to be in our relationships, but because of sin, they end up reflecting a poor image to us and we end up reflecting a poor image to them. And so instead of support from our friends, we experience disappointment. And instead of love, we experience conflict and competition. And instead of peace, we get war. The reason that hurts you so bad is because you still expect people to be perfect image bearers. And none of us are. So here's the temptation. I don't know if you felt this or if I'm just kind of being honest with my own heart, but I've certainly been tempted to get cynical when I get hurt and to say, I'm done. I'm done. Don't say that. Please don't. Because you'll never understand yourself. You will never understand God without relationships. You can't do it. So how do we stick with them? Well, we need to understand what's at the root of the problem. And we need to understand... Beyond the root of the problem, we need to understand the solution and then the kind of relationships that are actually possible when we live out of the solution. So let's talk about the problem first. Paul actually gives at the first half of this, this is why I included this, even though we read it last week, the, the thing that is at the root of all of our relational problems. You think, wait, that can't be. It is. It's true. It, it can't be that simple. It is trust me and we'll you'll see why in a second but he says this in verse 26 let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other and there you have both the symptom and the cause of every relational conflict you you and I have ever experienced and I, and I love what Paul starts with because he he says let us not become this, which is a great admonition to say, we're, we're all prone to this. I know you hear the word conceited and you go, that's not me. We'll get into that in a second. Hopefully God will change your mind on it. But that's all of us. All of us are prone to this. And, and you, you'll never get rid of something that you don't realize you have already. When you ignore an issue, it becomes bigger and it becomes bigger, and it becomes bigger, and suddenly everyone around you can see that you have an issue except for you. So the first thing I would say is please believe that you're prone to this as well. Don't just blame all the other people for having this issue around you and think that you're a victim because you're, you're involved in this too. You're an image bearer who's broken and needs to be restored, just like everybody else, just like all of us. So Paul says this, our, our two main problems, or at least the symptoms of our problems, are provoking and envying. The word provoking means to challenge someone. Here's the thing, I don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm looking to challenge someone, I usually pick the people that I think I can win with, right? If you're playing tennis and you show up to the court and you look around the landscape, you look for the slowest guy, on the court, and you go, I'm going to challenge that guy, right? (laughs) Why? Because you're looking down on them. You feel superior to them in that way. You provoke them because you feel above them. And you're absolutely sure of your superiority in that particular area. That's what provoking is. It's a superiority complex. So that's on the one hand... On the other hand, envy is to look up, right? It's to see something that someone else has and to hate them for it because they have it and you don't. It's to feel inferior to the people that are around you. And Paul says, this is the symptom of our great problem. We constantly, every day, feel either superior to or inferior to other people. That's it. I mean, how how many of you, just being honest, you've experienced this this week? My hand is up already, okay? But, and here's the key, Paul says that the reason, the root, those are the symptoms, but the root that you feel either superior or inferior to others, the reason that your relationships fall apart, the reason that mine do the same, is because you've become conceited. You might think, well, that, that's not me. But the word conceited, if you look at the Greek, and I don't do this often, but I think it's helpful here, is the word kenodoxa. It literally means to be empty of glory. Doxa is the word for glory, and keno is to, is to be emptied of something, to take it out. To be conceited is to have a glory vacuum in your heart. And deep inside of us, we have a problem. We believe deep down that we don't matter. See the word glory, and we've talked about this before, is is to is to be weighty. It's to have importance or worth. Think of it like gravity. The most glorious body in our solar system is what? Is the sun. How do you know that's true? Because everything stays around it. Everything rotates around it. No matter how hard our earth tries to, to shoot out its own way, it keeps getting pulled back into the orbit of the sun because it has the greatest amount of matter. It matters. And as, as its matter grows, so does its gravity. It is the most glorious thing around us. See, when something is glorious, it's weighty, it's important, it matters. And the story of God tells us that when we walked away from God, who is the most glorious one, then we we come to realize something about ourselves that, that we, apart from Him, have no worth. That we don't matter. And we all know this about ourselves. All of us know this. We, we realize it deep down in our souls. And yet, we desperately try every day to prove to everyone around us that we do have it still. That we are somebody apart from Him. That we do have glory. That we do have weight. That we do have worth. And to be conceited is someone who's trying to prove something that really isn't true. It's trying to make other people believe something that you know deep down inside isn't really the case. That's conceited. If I'm being honest, that's, that's me. And that's most of the people that I know. I mean, sure, we can look to the people that we know without a doubt are conceited, right? We can look to those who are really rich and watch them like, buy a house that's way too big for them and, and pour all this money into the home just to, to kind of bring people into it and then get them to go, wow, amazing. But inside, you know that they're really the only person that lives there and it's just a giant vacuum that's symbolizing the hole in their heart. We all know people like that, that are doing it in big ways. But let me just say, that does not exempt you from the ways that you try to fill the vacuum in your heart. One of the greatest examples of this, and I'm going to read the quote from her, and then I want to tell you who she is, okay? Um, just because I, I want you to hear the words, and then I don't want you to be, like, tainted by the, the person who said it, because I think it's true for all of us. But she said this. This is a magazine interview with somebody who's famous. She says this, I have an iron will, and here's why. I'm struggling with fear. And I push past one spell of it and I discover of myself that I'm a special human being. And then I get it to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and un- 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 uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, even though I have glory, I still have to prove myself over and over again that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I don't think it ever will. Who do you think said that? That was Madonna. Now, you might think, okay, she's weird, right? She's kind of out there. That's That's why I held her name back. She's not weird. She's totally human. She's more in touch with what's going on in our hearts, I think, than we often are. Because her struggle is our struggle. It's the struggle of every human heart. We are conceited. We have a glory vacuum in our hearts. And the way that we look to satisfy that vacuum is by either hating those that we perceive to be above us in some way and going, well, it's just unfair that they have more. It's unfair that they've had better advantages. It's not fair. And we look at our boss or we look at our neighbor or we look at those who are more wealthy or more attractive or have a bigger income, whatever it might be, and we hate them for it. And that gives us our sense of worth. Or we do the opposite. We disdain those who we feel are below us. Those who are less educated. Those who are less open-minded than us. Those who are more racist than us. Those that aren't as progressive as we are. And we look down our noses at those people and that gives us a sense of superiority. Which then ruins our relationships. See, we have all chosen some way that we're going to gain for ourself some type of glory, some kind of worth, some way to know that I count for something in this world. If For Madonna, it's, it's being interesting and creative as, a, as an artist and how she pushes herself through those stages. What is it for you? What is it for you? If I'm being honest, for me, it, it's... It's tied to my performance as a pastor. It's tied to our success as a church sometimes. It's hard to be in relationships with other pastors and hear about all their successes. Because you think, well, why haven't I gotten those successes? And you do it too. The reason that we do it is because we're not full. There is a vacuum in our hearts. We are lacking What do you use to fill that? Now, so I think the, the beginning to change is to be honest that the vacuum exists and, and to be honest with why it's there in the first place. The, the Bible says that the... And this is going to sound totally um, harsh, and I don't mean it to, okay? So I'm just going to qualify that before I say it. <laughs> the Bible says that the reason that we feel like we don't matter is because we don't. I know, see, it sounded harsh. I was going over it in my notes and I thought there is no pleasant way to say that. But we have to know that this is the opposite of what the world tells us, Right? This is the opposite of what you've heard from every counselor and every teacher and every parent and every source of media and every song that you've ever heard that tells you that something that is untrue, which is that we have worth and significance apart from the one who made us. That we can stand on our own two feet. That we can have autonomy from our Creator and still have glory. The Bible says that... That endeavor is impossible. And the reason that you know it's impossible is because people spend their entire lives chasing after it without getting it. Even those that look glorious from the outside, and we look back and we go, wow, that person has arrived. In their heart, they're going, I have such a long way to go. See, Galatians 6.3, we read this, says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, They deceive themselves. So if we think that we can have glory apart from the one who made us, we're deceiving ourselves. That's what sin does. It convinces us that we can be somebody apart from the glory of the one who made us. It fools us into thinking that we don't need Him to to give us worth, to give us value, when really... If you look at the truth and you pull back the curtain, his opinion, his worth, his value over you, what he speaks over your life is the only thing that really matters. But if we're convinced that we can't get it from him or that he'll never give it to us, then we will go looking for it from other people. And that means we're conceited which will result in us being either superior or inferior to everyone who's around us. And this is what Paul says will happen. If you remember, we read this a couple weeks ago. This is part of Matthew's sermon in in Galatians 5, 13 and 15. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That's what we're to do with one another. And then verse 15 says this, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. See, what's he saying? He's saying God's definition of loving people is to sacrifice for others' good. It's to get your eyes off yourself and onto other people. But the world's definition of love is what you get from other people, right? That's part of the reason why marriages are incredibly screwed up today is because we get into marriages thinking that the reason that you've got a spouse is for them to meet all your needs. And then they don't do it and they fail to do it year after year after year and you begin to harbor and grow this ember of resent going, they don't give me what I want, they don't give me what I need, they don't give me what I deserve. So the reason that that resentment is growing is because your picture of marriage is completely upside down. Because if you use relationships to gain glory, what do you end up doing? You end up devouring those that are around you. You end up using them to satisfy your own needs and in the end you end up destroying each other. Is this, I mean, have you experienced the truth of that? I sure have. I've seen it in far too many relationships, far too many. So how do you go from devouring one another to serving one another in love? How do you go from needing others for your glory to emptying yourself for others' good? That's the question, right? If you don't know the answer to that, your only option is to continue to be conceited. It's to continue to fight this battle between superiority and inferiority every day of your life for the rest of your life. And and I so believe that God wants to free you from that. You've been freed to be free. Do you want to be free from that? Do Do you want to be full moment by moment, day by day, to be able to use your fullness for others' good? Doesn't that sound like a great dream for your life? That's God's dream for your life. I don't know if you realize that, but it is. And here's the way that that Paul says that we can do it. In verse 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You might think, well, that sounds too easy. What does that even mean? Well, we talked about last week that the Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. It's to make much of him it's to show his worth and his value in your heart right it's to bring your attention to him it's to make him real to you in such a way that you start to get full and one of the best places i think to to look at the glory of jesus and i, I and i'm my prayer this morning is that he uses the, his word these words in your heart today it comes from philippians 2 because we get this incredible picture of what Jesus is really like. In verse 5 through 7, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God some, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used for his own advantage. But he did what? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Paul goes on to say that he literally became nothing and he submitted himself to death on a cross for you. See, Jesus, who was equal with the Father, full of glory, enjoying relationship with him in perfection for all eternity, who mattered, who had worth, more worth than we could ever comprehend and imagine. I mean, the king of the universe, the one who, through whom everything was made. I mean, you're standing and sitting on ground that was created by the breath of God through Jesus Christ. You enjoy a world. I mean, if you get a chance to go to the shore this week and look out at the oceans and see the expanse of God's creation... Jesus is the one who did that. He's the one who hung every star in the sky. Who who built up the mountains. Who who filled every space with living things and creatures that, that cry out to God's glory. Jesus was the one who did all of that and more. He's the glorious one. Which should amaze you that... What he did when he came to earth is that he took all of that weight, all of that gravity, all of that glory, and he said, I'm going to put it aside. I'm going to take it off of me, and I'm going to empty myself. And Jesus, who is a king of all kings, came and he said, I did not come as a king to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what Mark 10 tells us. He became a glory vacuum. In other words, he, he did the very thing that we try our entire lives to avoid. He became nobody. Not superior, not inferior, not conceited, not seeking anything. He completely emptied Himself we try our, to, to fill ourselves and to devour other people along the way and Jesus empties Himself and serves us, becoming nothing in the process. And Paul says that in Christ, if you are in Him, which means you have accepted His gift of grace by faith. You, you said, I, I want my life to be yours and yours to be mine. I, I want you to forgive me and seal me and make me new. If you've If you've experienced that and done that in Christ, then this mindset, this mind, this way of living, this way of seeing other people that's keeping in step with the Spirit, it's yours. Isn't that amazing? That His way of, of relating to other people, if you're in Him, now belongs to you. It's in your bank account. He's already transferred it there. It's just a matter of whether or not you're choosing to access it or not. If you had a billion dollars in your bank account and you're struggling to pay your bills, wouldn't the light come on at some point and you go, "I, I forgot. I have an incredible bank account that's been left to me by my father. I maybe I should go down to the bank and access some of that." That's what he's saying. It's yours. You might think, I've been a believer for I don't know how many years and I'm still struggling with this. I still feel inferior or superior to people all the time. How in the world do I stop that and start serving others rather than looking for them to serve me? And the answer is you need the Spirit to help you to see Jesus. You need the Spirit to make Him big in your life. So big that you can't avoid Him, that you can't get around Him. You need to to know that when Jesus gave up His glory, He didn't do it just generally for the entire world. He did it for you. The King of glory came and set aside His crown so He could serve you. He ran to you even though you're running from Him. And guess what? He's faster. He's faster than you are. He went to the cross on your behalf and He paid the penalty for your sin, which is death. He did it for you. And when He was up there, even though He knew that you would reject Him, even though He knew that you would walk away, He still cried out on your behalf, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He did that for you. He rose again after three days, defeating death for you. He ascended to heaven so that he could send the Spirit into your heart, so that you could live differently. He's standing in heaven right now this morning before the Father, advocating on your behalf, praying for you that God would give you his very best. For you, right now. And here's what happens in our hearts. When we see him, when we experience Him, when we go, wow, I can't believe it, I'm, I'm getting a picture of that, God's making it real, He's filling me up. You realize that you don't need to be filled up from other people. You start to use your, what you've been filled with to fill other people that are still a vacuum. And Paul gives us this great list. We, we don't have time to get into all the pieces of it, but he gives us this example of, in this passage of what it looks like when we have the mind of Christ, when we are walking in the Spirit in our relationships. Because remember, I said this at the very beginning, you cannot walk by the Spirit. You cannot have the mind of Christ without it changing you and the people around you. Without it impacting your relationships. You can't do it. Because He starts to do it through you. And then you see Him make that change. And here's how. He, He says... Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But Watch yourselves, or you you too may be tempted. He says, confront others' sins in order to restore them gently. See, if if you're stuck in the superiority-inferiority trap, then if someone's caught in a sin around you and you feel superior to them, what what are you going to do? You're going to look down on them you're going to be thankful for your self-righteousness that you would never fall into the trap that they did. You'd be glad that you don't struggle with the things that they struggle. You start to feel better about yourself, right? If you feel inferior, though, and someone that that you look up to is caught in, in a sin, then you probably crave their approval so much that even though you know their sin is harming them, it's harming other people, you would never risk their disapproval by pointing it out to them. And so you just let it go. And you let it slide. If you were governed by the Gospel, I'd love to just... We'll just hang on this one just for the rest of our time because we only have a little bit. If you were... If you had the mind of Christ, you're... you're, walking by the Spirit, you're getting filled up from, from seeing Jesus in your heart, in your life, and you see someone struggling in sin. It's a habitual pattern, and you know God has put it on your heart, and you're, you're, you want to believe the gospel. What would the outcome be? What, what would be your mindset and the way that you would think about that other person? This has never happened to you. So, but let's pretend that it will, okay? Because I'm thinking it will, if it hasn't already. What's your mindset? Governed by the gospel. How does that change the way that you may interact with that person or go to that person if you believe it? I mean, you ever want to tell somebody off just because you want to rub it in their face that they harmed you? or that they did something wrong. That's superiority, right? The, the gospel changes all of that. And, and if we're believing the gospel, then we go to that person in love. You get the picture, the, the word restore is, is actually the same word used to reset a broken bone. And you, you go to the person going, this is going to be painful, but I'm going in love, knowing that short-term pain will equal long-term healing. And I want to give my heart and my life to that endeavor because I love this person. I want to see them be able to stand again even though they're broken right now. It changes the perspective of the way that you go, right? James, what were you going to say? Yeah, and I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, watch yourself, lest you too may be tempted. And what he's saying is, don't go in a way that where you think you could never fall into the same thing that they've fallen into or something that's just as bad. You go watching yourself going, I'm just as susceptible of broken relationship with God and broken relationship with others, and so I'm going as someone, as a fellow struggler, rather than someone who's coming in like a helicopter to save someone. I can't be the one to save them. I can just be the one to go to them as a as a fellow brother, as a fellow sister, and show them, point to them where they can be saved, and help them to see the salvation of the Lord. But if we go in with superiority, watch out, because God will make it clear that we too can be tempted. We're not to be, you know, we're 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 we have a glory vacuum too, right? Anything else that comes to mind for you? Yeah. Yeah, great compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and part of uh, we were just talking about this as a group, right? On on Friday night, the the fact that when I know someone's story well enough, then I it grows my compassion for them. So when I see them doing something that's either in line with the brokenness of their story, or God is at work in them, and and I see them struggling through it, I become their champion rather than their critic. And, and we should be champions of one another, not critics. People that want to see someone come to the best of who they could be, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So encouragement rather than discouragement. Yeah, relationships cost time, Right? And, and to know that it's not a drive-by solution. Because we're so quick. Like with our culture, everything's accessible. We think, well, you, sh- you should be fixed now. I told you once. Like, it should be all done. Why are you still struggling with that, you know? But relationships are messy and they take time. And they take us putting some other things aside in order to see them come to fruition. Especially when there's brokenness involved, Right? And here's the thing, you you will never give sufficient time in relationship unless you believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus set aside what he could otherwise be doing for us. And he didn't have to come and spend 30 years of his life in obscurity learning what it was like to be a human in order to be with us and save us. And yet Jesus and we're even told that when when Jesus became a man, he He is now in bodily form forever. Even though before that, he was not. So Jesus, for eternity, has limited himself in order to be in relationship with you. If you know that God has done that for you, you will do it for others. And to the degree that you believe it is to the degree that you see it. James says, you say that you have faith, but I don't see works. My faith works itself out in works. And what he's saying is, not he's saved by works, but what he believes about God and what he has done for James means that James then shows what God is like by the way that he lives. If we'll believe it, then we'll see it. It's the way that belief works. I'm sorry, I saw somebody else's hand too. And that's, re- that's really the difference between uh, bearing one another's load and giving advice, Right? Um, Because, and this is often what we do, is that when when we see someone bearing a heavy load, which obviously people that are in uh, prison have, through fault of their own or brokenness in their history or their family, they are at that moment bearing a heavy load. And and oftentimes we want to go to someone who's bearing a heavy load and go, hey, if you just position your hands a little differently on that boulder, it'd be really easy to push it, you know? You're kind of struggling with that. Just... Move your hand here. All right, now position your feet. Okay, you got it. All right, you got it. You know? And then we walk away. And that's not what it means to bear one another's burdens. To bear one another's burdens means that you get under the rock. You push yourself. And here's one of the first things you realize when you start to push on someone else's burden is that you realize just how heavy it is. And you go, I had no idea. Which then again gives you great sympathy and empathy for that person and the more that you struggle with that weight with them the more you want to see them be free of it it's so the more effort you begin to push on it with which means the longer you got to be there to do it does this make any sense confront others in their sin to restore them gently carry one another's burdens this is the law of christ this is what it means to be free in the gospel—that we would give our lives together for one another in this. So here's here's one I want to end with. Paul summarizes this by saying, "Our posture will be like brothers and sisters. If if you um, are a friend to someone, but you know know them really well, then you'll like we kind of said like." well, I don't know them very well and I kind of see this, but it's, you know, it's not my place to say. If that person were your brother, though, you would feel an internal motivation to be part of setting them free. Would you not? And there are only two options. there are either people that belong to the same family as you because they've come to faith in Christ and so they're they're part of the same family that's been given the grace of God just as you have and you're all equal in Him and so you use your life for their good. Or they are people who are not yet part of the family but whom God loves desperately and wants to see become part of the family. Who, pe- people whom He wants to adopt as children. Those are the only two options. Which means that we can see everyone as though we're a brother or a sister. So I want to ask you this. With the Spirit's help, as we go to the tables, who is God calling you to be a brother or a sister to this week? I'm confident that the Spirit will put at least one person on your mind. Someone for whom you may need to confront in love or someone who is carrying a heavy load and you need to get under that rock with them. Who is he bringing to mind for you to love? And what, is he, what does he want to show you about Jesus that would enable you to do it? I want to pray, and then we're going to come to the tables, and I'd love for you to come with that question in mind. Spirit, reveal that to me, and then help me to see Jesus and what he's done for me that would actually enable me not to feel superior or inferior to them, but to love them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the mind of Christ. That if we belong to you, we've been set free to be given a new way to live, a new way to relate, a new way to love that serves people like you served us. Father, forgive us of our conceited hearts. Forgive us of trying to fill the vacuum of glory that we know exists with other things besides you. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to be full. Help us to know that that you love us and give us grace and acceptance and approval and you're speaking that over our hearts now by your Spirit so that we might become full. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring at least just one person to mind for all of us that we might love as you loved us do this in Jesus' name. Amen.